they are the last large charismatic mammal that we get to see um, in Cape Town. They just need us to see them, enjoy them, don't interact, just enjoy watching them and don't feed them. Everybody without fail, every single person I ever meet has got their favorite baboon story. If we acknowledge that baboons are primate and we share DNA, um, we must acknowledge their emotional range too. I really would wish that we could move away from pain aversion completely and, and really rather focus on, on getting human behavior better sorted out. Baboons will always be baboons. You know, they're opportunistic, they're clever, uh, they're cheeky. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michael Homewood and this is Cape Town Real. We're all about creating positive change by promoting our connection with nature and a deeper understanding of the human spirit. Each week, I meet with interesting guests. So join me as I uncover and discover their knowledge, passion, and secrets to success. Enjoy the show. Yesterday, I took a trip to Cape Point, and uh, if any of you have been following me on social media, you'll know that I've been going to Cape Point quite a lot this spring, uh, making the most of this awesome weather we've been having recently. As I was making my way down towards the hiking spot, we passed a troop of baboons and we stopped the car and we just sat there and watched them for a few minutes going about their business as they were foraging and kind of cleaning each other. And it was just a really cool moment just to take some time and and watch them just doing what they do. Now, someone that knows all about baboons is my guest today. Her name is Jenny Trithowan. She's the founder and director of Baboon Matters. Now, although I don't know Jenny personally, I have known about Baboon Matters for many years. And every now and then I see Jenny somewhere on the Cape Peninsula helping to usher baboons away from harm and towards safety. In this episode, we hear how her journey started with the Komaki Environmental Awareness Group, KIAG. And uh, this journey opened her eyes to the subtle connection between plants, animals and humans and how we are all interrelated. And back in those days, if baboons were encroaching on on urban areas, they would kill off the entire troop, which is absolutely crazy. Because of this, Jenny took it upon herself to be the voice for baboons and created Baboon Matters more than 25 years ago now. And it was much needed because, as she puts it, baboons are a very polarizing topic. Some people love and respect them, whilst others hate and despise them. In this conversation, we learn about the intricacies of baboon management and how it has become more and more complex as urbanization has evolved on the peninsula. We hear about the famous Kataza, which is a male baboon who caught international attention and has put a much needed spotlight on the need for better baboon management, communication and policy. Jenny talks about how we need to move away from a fear approach for baboon management, and rather for us to take more responsibility for the opportunities we create for them. We will learn how many of these solutions are really simple to implement. Jenny shares her top tips on how to deal with a baboon encounter in the wild and also potentially on your property. We learn what precautions we should take to minimize our attractiveness to the baboons. It was so good to get a peek through Jenny's lens And as much as this is about baboons, I feel it highlighted a much deeper issue, which is the need for all of us to develop an awareness. 
to understand that our actions have an impact and that there are things we can do to support a more harmonious relationship with nature and to secure a more sustainable future. I'm sure you'll find great value in what Jenny has to share. So with that, I leave you with episode number 14. Jenny, welcome to Cape Town Real. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know how much you know, and I guess some of my listeners might be getting tired of me saying this, but I've been on my own journey with this show, and one of the directions that has become very clear, which which I am passionate about, is um, exploring our connection with nature. And uh, I was driving around the peninsula one day, and uh, I saw your car, and I thought, <laughs> well, this is someone that I need to speak to, because I've seen it around many, many times, and I think it's very relevant in Cape Town in terms of you know, being that on that line between, you know, humans and, and nature. So I'm looking forward to getting into baboon matters and, and everything you've been doing for the past 25 years. But I like to start off with, with asking the same question to all of my guests, which is what does Cape Town mean to you? And how would you describe it to someone that has never been here before? Oh, I think Cape Town has got to be one of the most beautiful cities in the world, um, without a shadow of a doubt. The diversity of what is in Cape Town from, you know, the mountains to the sea to the, the beautiful Fernbos. I mean, this spring, the mountain has just been absolutely glorious. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get into, you know, the, the beautiful specific little areas like Colk Bay and, um, you know, Table Mountain itself. So, yes, it is it is quite honestly one of the most beautiful places on earth, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, we've had a fantastic spring and um, I think the winter's been pretty cool as well. I know we've had some crazy storms, but in between it, there's been some beautiful days. Yes. Um, except we weren't able to enjoy all of them because we were all locked up. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we could get out, it was good. Yeah. Didn't it um, make the freedom better? Pardon? It made the freedom better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You could smell the fresh air and really appreciate everything. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that's become kind of uh, su- was quite surprising to me is that there's a fair amount of international listeners for the show. And uh, I wondered if you wouldn't mind, as um, the director of Baboon Matters, an organization you started over 25 years ago, could we maybe just touch on the basics of what a baboon is and a little bit about yeah, what they're all about? So baboons are primates, just like us. Um, the baboons that we have in Cape Town are Chakma baboons. And um, they are the last large charismatic mammal that we get to see um, in Cape Town. It, they are, baboons are an incredibly polarizing topic, though. People either are very tolerant or absolutely hate them. Um, there's, there's very seldom any sort of middle ground to, to these animals. They are incredibly intelligent, incredibly opportunistic. Um, they have the same, you know, opposable thumbs as we do. And so they can open just about anything and get into just about anything. Um, but their troop structure, their, their very um, way that they operate within the landscape that they operate in is endlessly fascinating. And I think it is a privilege for us to have them as our wildlife neighbors. Um, and they do shine the light on many issues that we do need to be more cognizant of, I think. Yeah. And what was it that inspired you to start Baboon Matters 25 years ago? Was it a personal experience or something that you were noticing that needed attention? Yeah, so so 
you know, um, when Wally Peterson and I started, first of all, it was it was Comic Environmental Awareness Group, um, okay. thirty years ago, actually, all of that time ago. Wow. And um, we did that because the way of dealing with baboons at that stage was that you simply um, eliminated entire troops. So it wasn't just that you would say, well, you know, this is a problem that we're having. You, you eliminated the entire troop. So the entire troop was eliminated in Kamaki. And while um, I didn't know anything about baboons, to be honest with you, I was just an average housewife living in Kamaki. And, you know, Wally uh, led a very impassioned meeting. And we realized that we had to do something better than just killing off, you know, our wildlife neighbors because we felt a bit inconvenienced. Mm. So Wally and I started Kierg, um back in 1990. And what Keg showed us is that everything in environment is, is interconnected. So, you know, we were looking at, well, why are the baboons spending so much time on the side of the road? And it's, you know, we throw down so much roadside litter, which is an attractant to them. And then we started looking at um, how we could better deal with the alien invasive species, um, the Roy Kranz and Black Wattle and so forth. We started alien clearing projects. Um, and then, of course, it was recycling for residents. And so everything is so interconnected. You can't separate out one aspect of, of environment or biodiversity. And so Keg was doing really, really well and um, really had done enormous work uh, for the community and the environment. And then I decided that actually I needed to focus my attention specifically on baboons, although everything's interrelated. Mm-hmm. So I started Baboon Matters um, in about 2000, 2001. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of that, uh, well, I mean, I was just thinking before our conversation as a child, you know, coming out, I, I live, I grew up in, in the southern suburbs. So coming out to the peninsula was, was a nice adventure. We we're going surfing or going to the beach or, you know, none of the places were nearly as built up as what they are now. But we'd always see baboons, you know, like on yeah. Chapman's Peak or around Komaki by Slankop. And now you, I don't know. You, you sometimes see them on your way to Cape Point, but I find that Cape Point is generally the only place that I see them on a regular basis. But I know there's a few hot spots. Um, mm. how, how has the population kind of changed over the last 20 years since you've been, you know, monitoring yeah. them and protecting them? Thank you. That's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, you know, in the, in the good old days, um, they definitely, you know, the baboons on Chapman's Peak. And we all remember seeing the, the, the baboons on Chapman's Peak. And definitely at more of the scenic spots, you know, along the way as you drove along. Um, one of the things that people don't really realize uh, how much impact it had on baboon population was the impact of medical research. So we had one of the most preeminent heart surgeons in the world, and there was, but there was also a lot of medical research um, on animals. And so a lot of sure. baboons were captured for medical research, which is, wow. I think, a very sad part of, of Cape Town's history for the baboons. And then when baboon management started, it was incredibly underfunded because baboons in those days were considered to be vermin. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, they were considered to be vermin. So there was no um, money to manage baboons. And so actually getting baboon management going was was a very long process. Um, But now that it's been properly funded by the city of Cape Town and they, they have got a really great budget and so on and so forth and it's well resourced, 
So now the goal is really to keep the baboons off the roads. And that is, is mainly for the baboons protection because so many baboons have got, you know, for such intelligent animals, they've got no road sense at all. So um, that's mainly the reason we don't see them on the roads. And then secondly, is that people are just compelled to feed baboons. And, you know, as much education as we've, we've put out there, don't feed baboons. It's honestly the worst thing you can do for these animals. Just, just don't feed them. But, you know, people feel that they, they must be hungry, that they're sitting on the side of the road. Um, I think they're fascinated by baboons. And so inevitably, if people see baboons, they want to feed them. And so it's, it's a double-edged sword because then it keeps them on the side of the road, which is really dangerous for them. So the, the current management system is to try and keep them off the roads as much as possible and also trying to, to, to get people to not feed baboons when you see them. Mm. Do, you get you can get a fine right if you're caught feeding a baboon you can. From, yeah. yeah absolutely um unfortunately in the very long time that i've been doing this work no one's ever actually been fined which right. i think is a great shame because i think if if people were fined and 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 people and visitors and residents understood the fact that you could get fined i think it would go a long way towards making people more compliant um mm. but you know no, nobody has been fined and I think that's a really you know it needs to be enforced because we can't just keep doing education education if there's no if there's no sort of carrot and stick aspect to it mm. so so when you say you know when we the humans are feeding the baboons on the road does that also then create a connection for the baboon that human means food so is that what also brings them to their houses or is that a separate thing that that happens um I think, I think that there are separate issues. I don't think that baboons look at all people and associate all people with, with giving them food, but definitely yeah. at, at spots like, you know, the classic one was Fred Baboon at Miller's Point, and he became, you know, an incredibly internationally known baboon. And Fred got so wise that he could understand when cars were being locked or not locked and, and you know, Jeez. incredibly dexterous and smart, so he could get into almost any car. And he knew that cars were associated with food because typically people on that route to the scenic drives had picnics. So Fred knew that he could get into the car and get some, grab some food. But I don't think feeding from cars necessarily associates all people with giving food. But the, the, the big problem that people don't understand about feeding baboons and, and why are we so vehemently opposed to it, when you feed baboons, um, baboons have got very, very definite hierarchical structures. And the, the high-ranking baboons have priority for food. So if you just go in and you give food to, to a baboon, you may be upsetting the high-ranking, the, the structure. And definitely the baboon doesn't feel grateful to you for feeding them. They think you're stupid for giving mm. them food because baboons work very hard for their food. And you'll often see that the higher-ranking ones will go and steal food from the lower-ranking ones. So for a human being to give food to a baboon, in actual fact, what we're saying is, we are subservient to you. Here's our food, take it. So, you know, one doesn't want to get into a fight about food either, but just the principle is don't feed them. You know, they don't need our food. They don't need, our, you know, sugary human foods. Um, they just need us to see them, enjoy them. Don't interact. Just enjoy watching them and don't feed them. And when you say just enjoy watching them, I mean, what is the kind of, safe approach to 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 deal with being in an area where there are baboons and perhaps a troop moves in when you 
I don't know, having a picnic and I guess you'd, you'd pack up your picnic very quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure people get into some, some tricky situations. What is the best way to handle that? So, so the best thing to do is, as you said, um, if I, I think most of the, in Cape Town, certainly most of the designated picnic areas, um, they do try and keep baboons away. I'm um, at Buffalo's Bay in, in, in the reserve, the Cape of Good Hope Reserve. Um, it's a very, very popular picnic area and um, the baboons do tend to go through after the people have left. And the reason for that is because people leave so much trash behind. Uh, so yeah. I think that over the years, certainly the last few times that I've been witnessing it, is that um, the baboons don't worry to try and get food from you, but they, they go through your trash after you've left because human beings are an incredibly wasteful species. So we mm -hmm. throw away so much food in our rubbish. Um, but yeah, if you're in a picnic area and you see baboons, you know, ideally you want to just stay as calm as possible. You want to pack up your food as quickly as possible. So there's no rewards for the baboons there. If they do manage to to acquire some food from you, you honestly don't want to go chasing them down for it. Just let it go, you know, pack up, stay calm, and and move away, uh, you know, as, as quietly and and calmly as possible. Because, you know, you you don't want to sort of agitate a situation that you don't need to. Hmm. And are the baboons drawn to the human food because it's easy pickings, as you say, or is it also because their own resources are under strain because of development that we've seen over the last few decades? Okay, so I think in some of the urban troops, so particularly Slankop, Tagama Park, Waterfall troops, um, there, there has been twofold, two, two things happening. One is that, yes, we're encroaching more into their space. But secondly, um, is that management is keeping the baboons in smaller and smaller home ranges. So they find areas where they can manage the baboons effectively so that they don't go into the villages. And those home ranges are definitely being condensed over, over time. And then also what we've had in the peninsula for a number of years now are, are very bad wildfires in uh, consecutive years in the same sort of areas. Mm -hmm. So one thing's the Plain Plast Dam, for example, and we've had consecutive fires there, I think it was two years in a row. It was 16, 17, I think. Um, and so that impact on the vegetation means that you've got very immature vegetation, which is not necessarily providing a lot of food for the baboons. So, so there, is, there is enough food in the landscape, even though it's been impacted upon. But, but our human food is definitely easy. So it's a combination of both, both sides of, of, the, of the point. Okay. And then just touching on the uh, baboon management what is in place right now? How how is it being managed? And I and, and I guess it's the it's the that line between the humans and the baboons' natural habitat, which is obviously you know crosses in different parts of the peninsula. Um, yeah, could you speak a little bit about how that's being managed and and how they go about doing that? I see the baboon monitors, which is linked to the city council. Is that correct? Yeah. So so the city of Cape Town, the city of Cape Town has a tendered project that they run, budgeted every year, mm. and they run a tender process uh, through which a service provider acquires a contract for, in this case, it's now three years. So we've just seen a change in service providers actually today on the 1st of October. So the service provider mm. who was 
who had held a co contract for the previous eight years, or since 2010, 10 years, he's now lost the contract to a new service provider. The interesting thing is that it doesn't really matter who the service provider is, the, the protocols are, are set um, by the baboon technical team, which is made up from the city of Cape Town, Cape Nature, Sand Parks, the Navy, and then oversight uh, on welfare issues from the SPCA um, and scientific input from uh, the local university. So the BTT has established these protocols and guidelines um, and the way in which they subscribe to baboons being kept out of urban areas is through use of pain aversion and sound aversion. So that's the painful guns, the bear bangers, this new ideology or idea concept uh, of a virtual fence whereby very, very loud sound explosions are, are played in such a way as to scare the animals. So wow. they don't know where the sounds are coming from and they, they sort of avoid an area. So it's very much uh, a landscape of fear attitude. Mm -hmm. And what I can say is that in the 10 years that this landscape of fear has been happening, um, if I look at Comiki today, there's still baboons coming into Comiki for the easy food rewards. And, and that is because, you know, you can't have a project running in this very densely occupied human area where the human behavior is not in any way considered. So there are no bylaws in place um, for, to, like if we, we live in Komiki, there are no bylaws saying how we must manage our waste, you know, the fact we should cover our vegetable patches, what sort of, you know, foods or fruits we could plant in our gardens, for example. So without bylaws, um, we can do as much education as we like. So Baboon Matters has been doing vast amounts of education over the past 10, 15 years, um, and as have many other NGOs. But without the bylaws to actually implement what is needed, all that has been happening is that the baboons are being criminalized and persecuted for our bad behavior. And so for me, that is a very unjust system and one that we hope to change. Yeah. And what is stopping from having the bylaws put in place? Well, okay. So through, we've been for the last two years, um, a number of wildlife organizations, myself, Baboons of the South, have been really pushing hard that the protocols need to be reviewed, revised, and then a comprehensive management plan installed and put in place. And then, you know, through the use of bylaws actually implemented. And it's, so just prior to Kataza being relocated, um, we had actually heard from the, from Minister Bradell that he has instructed Cape Nature to do this workshop, that, that it's taken us two years to get to this point of a workshop yes. yeah, being considered. So we're very pleased that at long last we can have the opportunity to all sit around together because it can't just be science-based, you know. We're living, we're living in urban areas and increasingly human-occupied space. So we have to consider the humanities. We have to consider, you know, human behavior. We have to consider the demands of humans in conjunction with our wildlife neighbors. It can't just be about the baboon numbers or, you know, it, it, there's got to be more to it than, than that. Mm -hmm. So we're very pleased to know that the minister has instructed Cape Nature to organize this workshop and we're hoping that will happen before the end of November okay. and then we're hoping from that 
that the protocols will be vastly amended, um, as I said, taking way more cognizance of, of human behavior. Okay, excellent. Well, that sounds like some progress. Yeah, last. <laughs> at long last. Uh, yeah. Uh, so right at the beginning, you mentioned that that uh, the topic of baboons is quite polarizing and people either love or hate them. And you just mentioned Katazo, who I guess is currently the most famous baboon in South Africa. Uh, maybe you could just give us a bit of an update on, on him, what, what, what the story is behind Katazo and, and what's unfolded and what's, where we are right now, I guess. Yeah. Well, Katazo, I think, definitely is the most famous baboon. I would, I would go so far as to say internationally as well as nationally. Okay. Um, it's been amazing how his story has just reached out to people. Um, yeah, beyond, I mean, I've been quite honestly astonished at how far the story has actually gone and how oh, much really? Yeah, we've had people following his story from, you know, all over the world. But so basically what happened is um, as part of the management tactics currently in play, if a baboon is considered to be a recalcitrant problem animal, mm. he can be killed all right, sure. and removed. And, and the theory was that if you take away these problem animals, the other baboons won't learn bad habits. What I've been saying for years now is that all the baboons know what to do. They don't need to be taught. They've, they've all been, they know where to get easy foods. They've been watching since they were born what's been happening. But in Kataza's natal troop, which is Slankop, the two adult males were killed in the last 12-month cycle. So effectively what that did is it left two very young baboons in charge of the troop. So that's George mm -hmm. and Kataza. So it's like leaving the teenagers in charge of the family. Sure. Yeah. And then on top of that, the troop was moved back to Komiki after having been out of Komiki for four years. And on top of that, as if that wasn't bad enough and, you know, conflictual enough, um, when the troop was brought back to Slankop, it was in summer. And Slankop Mountain is completely dry in summer. There is no water uh, on mm -hmm. Slankop in summer. So it was almost like a perfect storm scenario. You know, the baboons were brought back to Komiki no water and so for the first few days and also with very immature males i mean that they're they're mature male adults but not experienced in in, in managing the troop or, or running mm. the troop and so the first few days that they were back in kamaki they stayed on the mountain and then of course the need for water was one of the main drivers that actually encouraged them to come into the village and the baboons started coming into kamaki essentially for water um, and then, of course, when they were in Kamiki, they discovered that it's an absolute oasis for them. You know, it's loads and loads and loads of, of trees, gardens, vegetables, and, of course, the ever-present human waste, the garbage, and lots and lots of food in garbage. And so they became very adept at outwitting the monitors and getting off the cliff faces and into the village on an almost daily basis. Um, where things sort of went badly for Kataza is that the unwritten policy of baboon management, as it's been up to now, is to mainly have one male troops. Now, this goes against everything in baboon hierarchy, because normally you have one adult male to three fe adult females. But the policy has definitely been to, to have one male troops, which one adult male, which management has felt was, would be more easy to so now we've got two adult males, George and Kataza, and um, it was decided that Kataza was more problematic than George. 
it's an opinion I disagree with because I think that our urban baboons are all, they all know what to do. And it's not up mm. to the baboons to change, it's up to us to change. But anyway, um, the decision was made that Kataza should be euthanized, killed in terms of the protocols. The residents objected and the decision to euthanize him was cancelled. And instead they decided it would be better to move him across to Takai. And so that's where Kataza's story sort of caught national and international attention okay. because he hadn't decided to disperse. He was very happy in his yeah. natal group. He had just had offspring. Um, I know one of the scientists just d- debated whether they were Kataza's offspring. But I think that that's an irrelevant point because Kataza thought they were his children. He was a very attentive parent, a very attentive father baboon. I don't think mm. he would have made the dis- disperse. I think that the troop was just settling down. Um, and I was absolutely astonished to discover that he'd been taken from the troop. Um, it was done under the utmost secrecy. It's happening. And it was only four days after he'd been taken when we'd been repeatedly asking, where is he, that we were told he'd been relocated to Tokai. And so myself and two colleagues went and we really searched hard and we found Kataza wandering in the streets of Tokai, a very stressed, very, very stressed animal. And he just didn't know what on earth had happened to him. He discovered food in waste from restaurants and very quickly settled into a pattern where he knew where he could go and get easy food rewards on a daily basis. And bizarrely, um, Kataza discovered Polesmore Prison to be a safe place for him. So he would put himself into Polesmore Prison every day where everybody adored him, the the warders and staff and everybody adored Kataza, seeing Kataza. So every evening Kataza would go and put himself in either Polesmore or on the shopping center and clearly this was not, you know, it was not a sight that anybody wanted to see. We didn't want to see this very forlorn baboon traversing urban areas, calling and calling and calling for his troop. Mm. So what has happened is that Kataza has shone the light on baboon management and the need for better communication, the need for better policy, the need for the revision of the protocols, as I said to you. So. You know, as much as the last um, five weeks have been really, really difficult for that particular baboon, I am hoping and we are striving towards the fact that we really will be able to implement change now because there's so much attention on baboons that we really are hoping that this will be a catalyst to change for the baboons. Well, I hope so too. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. something good comes out of this. And uh, I'm just... I find it fascinating that he, he went to the prison. What do you think it is that, that um, what, what was it you think that the, the, that the prisoners and the wardens recognized in him and why they adored him so much? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, okay, so, so Polesmore prison is actually a very large space um, and there's a lot of open space, a lot of trees and of course tall buildings which for Kataza present a safe sleeping space at night. Okay. And I think for the warders, the the staff, um, and even the prisoners who saw him, 
it's just so unusual to see an adult male baboon in that context. And I suppose that's true, yeah. Yeah, and everybody who knew Kataza, who knows Kataza, uh, describes him as an absolute gentle gentleman baboon. Um, okay. We've had so many stories of Kataza walking up to people's doors to try and get in to get food, and they've said, no, you can't come in, and he's just turned and walked off. <laughs> so he he has... He has, in a way, just touched the public's heart so incredibly. And um, as I said, I think for the staff at Polesmore, it's just so unusual and such an unusual situation to see this baboon casually walking in the front gate or, you know, lowering himself in over the, the wall, you know, at night. Um, and it was, it, it was delightful and sad at the same time, a really bittersweet moment because I'd see him go over the tree at night and you'd hear the children uh, of the staff who live there, and they would see him, and they would all shout out, Kataza, Kataza, Kataza. And mm. it was so lovely that they were so pleased to see him, but just so sad that it was at his his expense that he was away from yeah. his family. Mm. Yeah, sure. I was also just thinking that, you know, he's just a reminder, just putting myself, you know, imagining working there or being a prisoner to have this like direct link to raw nature in, in, yeah. in the sense, you know, and, um, and, and why I feel what you're doing is so important because it's one of the um, very strong reminders that we have, you know, in, in Cape Town at least anyway, um, yeah. to have the baboons here, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, there are our last um, large mammal that we see and they are incredibly charismatic creatures. And, you know, through all the years I've been doing this work, you know, you always get some very angry people who uh, feel that I'm on the baboon side. Well, of course I am. I'm baboon matters. But yeah. on the other side, I, I, I recognize baboons can cause a lot of damage. Mm. They absolutely can. They're incredibly strong animals. Um, you know, they, they swing on your DSTV disc, for example, and that's cost you a lot of money. So I understand that they can cause damage. And... I fully support the fact that it's better for baboons to be out of the urban areas. Mm. But on the Cape Peninsula, those out of urban areas are getting smaller and smaller, aren't they? Mm. And they're getting more fragmented just through encroachment, through management, areas where baboons are now no longer allowed to go, where it's, it's, it's inhospitable for them. It's not practical for them. There's no water, for example. So we've got this increasingly fragmented landscape with these charismatic animals and they do remind us of I want to say better days possibly you know the nature connection um, mm. uh, we all everybody without fail every single person I ever meet has got their favorite baboon story you know you you said when you were a kid and coming along the scenic route and it was an adventure to come surfing and to see the baboons and yeah so they 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 evoke in us a huge memory of of past i think um mm. yeah okay and then just in terms of katazo and now being in takai do troops i mean is that part of the reason why he was in the prison i suppose that um takes a little while for a troop to welcome a new baboon in how, how does the dynamic work with all the different troops around the peninsula do they ever mingle or do they kind of clash so, okay, on the, on the Cape Peninsula, we have a close population of just over 500 baboons. And according to IUCN guidelines, you know, a, a close bottleneck population of 500 or less is, is 
is of concern because we're not getting the genetic flow of baboons coming on or off the peninsula. So essentially what we've got is a very, very limited gene pool. And when the baboons do move from troop to troop, it is better. But we are just really shuffling uh, shuffling the same genes around. They're all connected in some way or another because uh. it's been such a long time that there's this lack of genetic diversity. So, and also in the past, if a baboon moved dispersed from one troop to another, it can take anything from a week to a month, depending on the personalities. And you would, you would, we would be able to track them at baboon matters because we receive all the calls from the residents. So I would know, for example, when a baboon starts leaving Takai to go and look for a troop, you know, sometimes they go and look on Table Mountain. Um, and I would get all the calls and I'd be able to track exactly where they are. Um, but in recent years, under recent management, you know, obviously they don't want baboons moving through the urban edge. It's not good for the baboons. Um, and people on, are very worried about baboons coming into the urban space. I think most residents are quite delighted to see baboons passing through, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, but it's not good for baboons to be in the urban area. We, we, you know, high risk of car accidents and so forth. Um, so yeah, the, the, the troops are becoming more fragmented. But in Kutaza's case, he has um, found his way to the Tokai troop, which is the biggest troop. And he is slowly integrating. Um, I think on Tuesday night was the first night that he slept in a tree in very close proximity to the troop and he is interacting with the troop more um sort of starting to do a little bit of, i think there was the first bit of grooming today which is great so it's gone from the lip smacks and the being present to now a little bit of grooming so i hope he does settle down there because um he didn't really have any other options yeah sure okay and uh, as someone who's been I guess defending uh, baboons for so long, but also I imagine observing them, you know, just being in nature and just seeing them do what they do. What are some of the, th the things that you have seen and, and learned from just watching them? Um, I think the thing that, that most often was well, springs to mind, I think particularly today, because just prior to coming on your show today um, or, or speaking to you today, um, mm. I had a, a very traumatic call from a young woman who had just witnessed um, a baboon being knocked over in Montague on the Montague Pass. And um, she described, and she was really, really traumatized by what she'd seen. And she described the grief of the troop and how, how yeah. upset they were. And I think that is something that people who see baboons uh, realize is that they share the exact same emotional range as we do. So everything we feel baboons will feel too. And I think it's just really important. You know, we can't um, pick and choose, uh, you know, the bits that we like and ignore the rest. If we acknowledge that baboons are primate and we share DNA, um, we must acknowledge their emotional range too. And it frustrates me when people say, but you're being anthropomorphic. Uh, it's not anthropomorphic to recognize that an animal feels grief. It's not anthropomorphic to recognize an animal's angry, happy. You know, when you see the juveniles playing, they actually have a sound that they make. It's like a giggle. Mm, yeah. And, and so you hear that and, you know, we, we have to recognize this. They, they share a huge range of emotions and therefore we need, to, we need to take cognizance of that. So the fact that we keep thinking that the only way to to manage them is, is, is through pain aversion, I think is entirely wrong. Mm. 
um, it hasn't worked for any species. And, um, you know, when you see these baboons being paintballed and it, it, it really is distressing. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really would wish that we could move away from pain aversion completely and, and really rather focus on, on getting human behavior better sorted out. And, and is that pain coming just from the, 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 the baboon managers or is it also the general public kind of defending their veggie patch or whatever it might be? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the things that I feel very strong about, when they started paintballing, to me, I felt it gave a very bad message to the general public. So whereas before it was, you have to be responsible for your waste and here's how you do it. When we saw the, the team on place with paintballs and using paintballs, the, the sort of message to the populace was, well, we don't have to worry too much about anything because we'll just hurt them and they'll stay away. And so a lot of residents have started using paintballs. Um, they're not allowed to. It's not, they, you have to get a permit. But, but they are seeing the officials do it, so therefore they think, well, they can do it too. And so baboons are being shot a lot more by residents with paintballs. So um, this weekend we stumbled upon, we were walking on the mountain and we saw a resident who was firing at the baboons with a very big paintball gun. And what he was actually doing was forcing the baboons into the village um, because they were running away from him. Hmm. So, you know, it's just, it's just something that you don't, we don't want to see happening. It's an, it's an increasingly violent society. You know, we don't want to see our animals being paintballed. And I think, you know, if it was any other animal in the world, can you imagine if, if we started using paintballs yeah. to discipline our dogs or, or goats or, or, you know, it, it would be unacceptable. So I, I, I cannot understand why it's acceptable to treat baboons in this way. Um, and yes, people do. I mean, I think one of the things I would love to see happen is that pellet guns should be banned forever because, um, the amount of, of animals, wildlife in particular, particularly our little vervets, um, are just hammered by, by pellet guns, uh, pellets, air yeah. guns. Yeah. Wow. And just on the officials, you know, are they actually shooting the baboons or are they shooting kind of to just scare them away? Do they actually aim for the baboons just as a matter of interest? Well, the, the official um, SOPs, um, standard operating procedures, are that the baboon should only be fired at on the rump um, and it shouldn't be the mums and babies. The problem with that scenario is that when the baboons come into the urban edge, um, typically they scatter. And they scatter for a number of reasons. They scatter because they can then access food rewards more quickly. Um, it's difficult for the, the monitors or the rangers to gather them up and get them out of town if they're all scattered. Um, and so for the, the, the rangers who are working in this scenario, it's, it's very tricky because you've got baboons who've scattered everywhere. Mm. And so they do fire a lot more inaccurately than they should. So, so in other words, they're not following the terms of the, the SOPs at all. Mm. Um, the second part to it is that using the paintball markers, using the, the paintball guns, instead of strategizing or, or managing better. So what we're seeing is that um, first thing in the morning, to move the baboons from a sleep site area, the baboons are being shot at. So in an area where they should be safe, 
and shouldn't be fired at at all. And they are being because it's become an easier method of making them move in the direction, herding them in the direction you want them to go. But there is a new service provider now who started today. And um, by the time your podcast goes out, I wouldn't want people to think what I'm discussing now is going to be applicable to the new service provider. We're hoping that there will be a big change with the new service provider. Okay. And uh, I wanted to ask some top tips just uh, for residents. But before we get there, We've been talking a lot about Cape Town and the peninsula. Do you, does your work go beyond Cape Town and the peninsula? Do you, South Africa in general or, yeah. But Boone Matt is essentially me. So it's only one person um, okay. and my, my trustees. So I do try and get to as many baboon related issues as I can. Um, we tackled for a long period of time, the pine plantations of Sabi, which are a horrific um, blight on yeah, the baboons. I mean, it's just horrific what happens in those pine plantations up in, in Pumalanga, how the baboons are being slaughtered um, annually. So it's really shocking. Um, unfortunately, that's one area where we have not had any success. Um, the pine plantations effectively closed ranks and just continue to slaughter these animals in heinous ways. And, you know, I, I simply don't have the resources to take them on legally. And that for me is a, is a huge um yeah, it's a huge shame that I have, well, not shame that I haven't been able to effect change there because it really does need to be changed. Um, and then there's a lot of farmers um, and land users, more and more, which is, is fantastic for me to see, is that they are moving away from lethal methods of management. So I get a lot of calls from people to say, look, we're farming a certain crop. How can we change methods so that baboons don't raid? Um, people who are using land for tourism, for example, how can they change methods so that baboons are not seen as a a problem, they don't get into lodges, they don't raid waste and so on and so forth. And a lot of it is just really practical application. The main, excuse me, the main thing is the um, management of waste. So in, in most scenarios, baboons are coming in for those easy food rewards. And in most cases, it, it is unfortunately related to the food we throw away in waste. And if we could manage that and contain that and reduce the attractants, you would see that there's far less attract, you know, far less reason for them to come to human occupied space. Okay. And uh, for those living on the peninsula who, who uh, are in a kind of baboon uh, zone, uh, what are your top tips as a resident, especially for someone that's new? You know, maybe they've moved from the city to the peninsula and they're not used to the slightly more wild vibe out there. Um, uh, what, what, what are your top tips for someone moving into the area to to prepare themselves um, for a safe baboon encounter? So, okay, what what is working really, really well now, and most areas have them, um, are through the WhatsApp groups. Um, okay. Most communities now have a a WhatsApp baboon location. And this works fantastically well. So um, if you join the location group, if the baboons are coming into the community, everybody lets everybody know through WhatsApp exactly where they are. And then you you have the opportunity to quickly close up your doors and windows so the baboons can't gain access to your your home. Um, What works very, very well as a... uh, to chase the baboons away is water. They hate being squirted with water. Okay. So you turn your hose on and squirt them with water and they move off very, very quickly. But that 
WhatsApp location groups for all the different communities is, is just fantastic because, you know, you can get your dogs inside, you can get your hose pipe ready, close your doors and windows. And, you know, so in all the time that the baboons have been in Komiki, we haven't had the baboons in the house once, not at all. Um, other things that are, are really useful to remember, you know, what you're planting in your garden, if you do want to plant veggies, um, just make sure that they're covered um, and, you know, it's the best you can do is make sure that they're covered so the baboons don't gain, a- gain access. Mm. Um, on your dustbins, it's just so easy to baboon-proof your bin. You don't need to wait for the city to give you a baboon-proof bin. You can go and look on our, our Facebook page or our website. There's loads of tips. Um, very, very simple method. You just drill two holes on either side of the dustbin and you tie it closed. It's as simple as that and the baboons can't open it, you know? Yeah. Um, so... You know, we have on our property, we have composting through a, a worm farm uh, and it's contained so the baboons can't access it. The dustbins are contained, so they can't access them. And when they come into the locality, I simply make sure that the doors and windows are closed. And I know in the hot summer months, some people feel, you know, it's so hot um, out there. You want the doors and windows open. And, and I understand that. But typically with the monitors, the baboons will move through the area much, much more quickly if we're all doing the same thing. So if we're reducing the attractants um, and, and helping the monitors to get the baboons out quickly, then they will leave the village more quickly and we can go back to our open doors and windows again. Um, but just, you know, follow the, the location groups. They, they really, really work very well. Okay, great advice. Yeah. And for the... Uh, I mean, am I right in saying that like baboons naturally are afraid of us? They're not out to harm us, right? I mean, it's it's only you hear of the odd occasion where someone gets injured, and it's usually because I'm assuming now that they've been the baboon's been cornered or it's scared or something has happened. But if you're just out walking in the mountain, you're not yeah. gonna. There's no there's no reason to be afraid of them, right? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, completely. In the 30 years that I've been doing this work now, the, the handful of occasions where people have been injured are are so random and so typically people did something silly. Um, but that's bearing in mind there are wild animals and so one wants to make sure that we don't um, agitate a situation or cause you know, a situation to escalate. So one of the important things to remember is, is always just to stay calm if the baboons do manage to access your home um, and you need them to get out, it's just really important to know that, to make sure that they've got an escape route. Because as you just said, if they feel cornered or trapped, that's when the situation can escalate quite quickly. So if they have got into your property and you want them to get out, get a squirt bottle, a water bottle, make sure they're handy. A friend of mine who lives in Simonstown, um, she's got squirt bottles at, you know, easily accessible yeah and on the rare occasions that the baboons have access to a property she makes sure that there's an escape route she's got her squirt bottle and the baboons are out within a matter of minutes so i think little things like that um definitely help but no baboons are not looking for trouble um a lot of people ask about dogs and typically baboons will avoid the conflict they don't want to get hurt or injured so Mm. typically if dogs attack baboons they will move to get away they will only stop to defend and stop to defend if 
the juveniles or member of the troop is cornered or trapped, as you said. But mm -hmm. normally the troop will just try and get away as quickly as possible. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, I always like to finish with just a couple of regular questions. And they, they're a bit more kind of general, um, if you don't mind. Yeah. The, the first one is, um, and, I, and I guess, yeah, actually, no, before we get there, I was curious to know, what has kept you going for so long? I mean, you must have had some <laughs> difficult times over the 20, 30 years. Um, and, and I didn't realize it, it was you all on your own. And that's a lot of work to be, be, be doing. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what keeps you, what, what gets you up in the morning and motivated to keep going? I mean, apart from the obvious of just wanting to protect the baboons, is there, is there anything yeah. else? Um, yeah, look, I, I, there've been moments obviously of, of incredible frustration, you know, that it's mm. taken two years to get a workshop to review and revise, you know, that's such a, a reasonable request. Yeah. So I do get very frustrated. Um, but then on the other side, I do see, you know, when, when people, particularly farmers or, or land users in rural areas are phoning for advice rather than hurting the animals um, or killing animals. That really makes me encouraged to keep trying because um, I think we are getting through to people and people are wanting an, um, less confrontational, less killing, and that, that makes it worthwhile. And then, of course, it's the little animals themselves, the, the, the baboons themselves, um, who have such rich personalities and, um, you know, cultural uh, significance to all of us um, yeah and I think you know hearing this um, young lady who phoned me this afternoon before your show who was so clearly traumatized at the death of a baboon um, whereas years gone by in her community it was common practice to kill baboons so I feel that we are we are reaching people and 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 People are more aware of, you know, we want one small little planet and we've all mm. got to learn to live together. Um, and it's as simple yeah. as that, really. And, you know, we, we're such a wasteful species that if we could just sort of manage our, ourselves better, that it would be much better for the whole planet, not just baboons. Yeah. yeah. But, it's just yeah. a feeling of... Um people just need to take a bit more responsibility and look around and just yeah. be a bit yeah. more aware of, of the impact that we're all having. You know? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. As you say, yeah. the, the planet's small and it's not getting any bigger. We're only, we're only getting more and more people, you know? Yeah. And less space for them. And I mean, I think, I think that sadly the time will come where we probably will only see baboons in the national parks. Um, and, I, and I think that is, you know, why perhaps people feel so strongly for Katazo, who was so out of place walking through the, the, the suburban areas and, you know, crossing busy main roads. And, you know, uh, it's just, we're not going to be seeing that very much in the future if we don't really, really take steps and precautions now to manage ourselves better. And it's not about managing the baboons better. It's about managing ourselves better. Baboons will always be baboons, you know, they're opportunistic, they're clever, yeah. um, they're cheeky. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, but we, we, we need to have better systems in place. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, so here's one of the questions. Uh, what is the best advice you have ever been given? Just in general. <laughs> I know it's going to hit you with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think probably the best advice that I was ever given was, um, was not to take things so personally. Because particularly when you one person doing the work, I mean, I've got fantastic trustees. Please don't get me wrong. They're, they're really mm. great. But it's, um, and when people get really cross and emotional about things, um, instead of me taking it personally, just understanding that they just need to express themselves and giving them that space to, to say what they need to say. Mm. Um, so not so much seeing it as, my failure but rather their opportunity to to vent um and just to mm. to, to, to express themselves i suppose mm -hmm. excellent mm. and then on the back of that if you were to stand up in front of a room full of 25 uh, 20 year olds to give advice about life what would you say i would say to them that it's just really, really, really important to take every opportunity that you can. But my most important thing that I would say to them is, is don't forget to take your walks in nature. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's my absolute soul food. You know, we go mm. and walk along the beach, walk on the mountain. And I think if you keep doing those things, no matter where you are, you know, whether you're living in a big city or, um, you know, even in rural areas, it's, it's taking the time to stop and look. There's so much beautiful things to see, you know, and oftentimes, particularly young people are, are busy uh, with social or social media screens. Mm. And when you take the time to just stop and see all the, the very beautiful things that there are to see, you know, whether um, yesterday we discovered a beautiful little bunch of sea anemones in a rock pool, it was just absolutely glorious. How wonderful mm. is that? You know, there's yeah. your day for you. You you don't need anything more than that to make you smile, do you? So, yeah, yeah I would say to the 20-year-olds, the remember to stop and see the beautiful things that, that there are. Excellent. Yeah, that's one of the... One of my passions, I guess, that's coming from this podcast is is helping to raise awareness of, of that, you know, that's yeah. um, just to, to, to reconnect with nature, you know. I think... Yeah. Um, a lot of people and probably in your circles it's it's quite natural to be connecting with nature but there's so many other people that are actually very very far away from it and even living yeah. in a place like this you know which which i find yeah. mad but um it's happening you know and uh, yeah. anything that we can do to to help remind people that it's it's there and you know there's the science proves that it's good for you, you know? yeah, absolutely you know you absolutely i mean well, I, you know? I just consider myself to be so blessed to be able to do the work that I do. And I mean, my colleagues and I, when we, years ago, when we had a little team in place and we would just look at each other and say, wow, this is our work. Yeah. <laughs> How lucky is this? And uh, it just is. It's just, it's, it's been an absolute roller coaster, but so much joy, you know, to, to see these, um, uh, some, some really tough things that we've seen and we've had to, to get through and do, but, the joy of seeing the, these little guys. I mean, yesterday there was one little juvenile who's trying to work out how to get over a fence and it was just fascinating. So all the other troop members had worked out, you know, they gave themselves one big pull and they were over and this little guy just couldn't work it out. 
So eventually he just went through the fence and down. It was just, uh, I know it sounds like a silly little thing, but it was just yeah. so delightful to see the different personalities at play and yes. that you know, he, he, he worked it out his way. <laughs> cool. All right, yeah. five very quick, short, uh, just uh, quick fire questions. Um, I'm going to say two words and you've got to choose whatever resonates with you the most. Okay, <laughs> so mountain or ocean? Mountain. Electronic or acoustic? Acoustic. Sunrise or sunset? I definitely got to be sunset. I'm not an early bird. <laughs> okay. Cats or dogs? Oh, no, I can't choose there. Both. Both, yeah. I, I also couldn't choose on that one. Uh, sweet or savory? Uh, probably savory. Okay. Cool. Uh, Jenny, where can the listeners find out more about what you're doing and maybe to find uh, to follow the story of Kataza or to, to help um, support Baboon Matters? Uh, yeah, where can they go? We have um, a very active Facebook and Instagram page and okay. um, uh, also our web page. update our web page at the moment. Um, but that's been a bit sort of on the backlog because of Kataza, Kataza. Yeah. But Facebook is very, very up to date and the Instagram page is too. I see some, uh, unfortunately, some troll type person has suspended my Twitter account, but uh, I'm sure we'll get back up and running soon. Okay. Is that, and that's Baboon Matters? Baboon Matters, yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And, um, uh, I noticed on your website there's also a place to donate if anyone wishes to donate to the cause. Uh, that would be well. absolutely fantastic. It's uh, I I think the one of the things I've been very poor at is is fundraising. So uh, donations are very very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for um, giving me the time today and to just hear a bit more about your story and all the intricacies of baboon management. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how things unfold and hopefully that meeting that you've been waiting two years for works out well <laughs> and that these new guys that you've got uh, on the patrol end up doing a good job. So yeah, thanks so much for everything you've been doing. As I said, I've seen your car around for, you. for many years and um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much for, for showing an interest. Yo, before you go, just wanted to say thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you're like me, then you probably listen to this whilst driving your car or walking the dogs, which means you can't make notes of all the cool stuff you just heard. That's why I created the podcast portal. It's totally free. All you have to do is go to capetownreal.co.za and sign up to the podcast portal. Each week, I'll send you the most important bits related to that episode, and I'll include access to some special offers too. Hit that subscribe button, and if you're on Apple, then please leave a review. It would mean a lot to me. At Cape Town Real on social media is the place to be. Adios. Ciao.